0: that startups don't die of murder, they die of suicide.
1: What is up, everybody? And welcome to episode three of Makers Weekly. My name is Dan Parsons, and I am your host. In this episode, we speak with Philip Thomas, founder of Moonlight. We learned about how the journey of starting and shutting down his first venture-backed startup inspired him to create Moonlight, which is bootstrapped, growing, and profitable. We get into the details about how starting with manual processes and no-code prototypes eventually led him to building a very robust two-sided marketplace, currently supporting over 1,000 software developers with dozens of enterprise clients. I think you guys are going to love this episode, so without further ado, let's welcome Philip Thomas. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Dan. So I'm building Moonlight, which is a professional network
0: for software developers. So developers join the site to get access to our community and short contract projects that they can complete in their free time. And then companies use Moonlight to source and evaluate job candidates. And that can be for part-time work, for full-time work, for freelance, for full-time employment. And so we're really helping companies
1: and developers work together. That's great. Is this, uh, is this a global community or is it primarily in the States? It's about two-thirds in the States, but
0: we've been a nomadic team for the last two years. So we've met people working on Moonlight in various countries around the world, ranging from like Argentina to India to the UK to Spain. So we rely on Stripe pretty heavily for payments. So the main requirement is just that you have a Stripe account. So that kind of limits countries uh, because of that. But in general, we're a global platform
1: you have a really interesting story around, you know, how you came into building Moonlight. Um, Do you mind just giving us a little bit of your personal background and kind of walk us up to, to how you, you know, come to starting Moonlight?
0: Yeah, sure. So I went to school not for computer science. I think I only took the intro computer science class in university. And I learned to code in my free time and while doing biology research And so out of university, I went to a startup called OpenDNS, where I started in software engineering and really learned a lot about professional software and scaling a team. And that company ended up going on to get acquired by Cisco right before I left. And during my time at OpenDNS, I started uh, continuing basically a college research project I had started about applied math for workforce scheduling. So basically helping hourly workers figure out when to work. And I ended up turning that into a company with some revenue while working on it part-time and right around the time open DNS got acquired, uh, we were accepted to Y Combinator's first fellowship program, uh, which was kind of a precursor to their online startup school course. And it came with like a little bit of cash and some mentorship from them. And so it was a shortened program. And so that was kind of the impetus of going to work full time on StaffJoy, which was that company. And so StaffJoy was a very classic startup story. Uh, It raised a couple of rounds of funding, grew a team pretty quickly, and was selling to basically other startups. We were selling mainly to on-demand, app-based delivery companies. And in short, StaffJoy never ended up successfully transitioning to another market when all of those companies started to consolidate and shut down. And so we ended up setting down StaffJoy about two years ago. And while scaling StaffJoy, one of my hardest problems was hiring developers. And we were crazy overloaded with a a lot of work to do. And hiring was just such a time-consuming process. And realistically, we weren't experienced at it and not good at it. And what worked for us, we found out, was just hiring these job candidates to do short-term contract work for us. And then that helped us evaluate whether they were a good fit. And it also helped us build some relationships with candidates who we probably wouldn't have been able to recruit full-time. So when StaffJoy shut down, I really wanted to work on this idea of helping companies and developers work together. And that's where the idea for Moonlight started.
1: So when you say you were having trouble hiring, this is primarily in the engineering function, correct? So it was, it was hiring de- uh, software developers, engineers, um, designers. Is, it, is that right, primarily?
0: Ex- exactly. We shut down StaffJoy with about a million dollars cash left in the bank, which is over half of the money that we raised in venture capital. And I think that's not typical. Like most startups shut down when they run out of money. But one of our problems was we couldn't spend money
1: quickly enough in the areas that we wanted to. Do you mind talking through like that decision a little bit? You have a million bucks cash left in the bank. Why not continue to, you know, try and spend that capital effectively to grow? Like, at what point did you just say, I've lost conviction for this? My heart's not in it. What was the, you know, decision-making framework you used for that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that they told us when we were going through Y Combinator's fellowship program was that startups don't die of murder. They die of suicide. And I think that really comes into this. Any company can just keep running on fumes for a long time, but the founder has to make the decision
1: that it's not working and it's time to shut You have to be very logical in those types of situations because it can be very easy to be emotional when you're thinking about shutting down your business. Um, But it doesn't do anyone any good to you know, to continue to burn out the rest of your capital and keep your employees and your customers tied up for another year or two, just while you're um, delaying the inevitable.
0: Definitely. And trying to shut down a company with zero cash would have been really difficult. I was in a fortunate position where we could afford to have our lawyers help us out and we could pay them to do that. And really, if you were trying to shut down the company at the very end by yourself, I think that'd be a really difficult uh,
1: series of paperworks and things like that you would have to file. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the very early stages of moonlight and, you know, what were some of the assumptions you were using when you were building the business? How did you go about testing those assumptions? What were, you know, the earliest points of validation that you required in order to move forward with the idea? Um, if you could give us a little bit of insight into the early days, that'd be great. Sure. So one of my key lessons from StaffJoy was just
0: mainly that we had focused a lot on the solution space and not as much on the problem space. So with Moonlight, I really wanted to make sure that we were understanding the problem and the users and things from their perspective before we started trying to solve the problem with code. Because once you start writing code, it's really tough to make quick decisions. But if you have no code, you can basically experiment super quickly. So the whole idea for Moonlight started by saying, okay, let's see if anybody would want that. And so with Moonlight, the initial test was just saying, let's see if anybody is interested in short-term contract work. And so I emailed a thousand developers and said, hey, are you interested in short-term contract work? And I set my kind of threshold for like, will people want to work on this at about like 5%. So if we could get like 5% of the people that we emailed to sign up through a little, Squarespace site and an embedded type form that we put up, then that would mean that they were really interested. And so we sent those emails and just with one email touch, we ended up having over a 15% conversion rate. So we had over 150 developers sign up immediately on this form. And that was definitely motivating. That was a sign to me that maybe the staff joy problem was uh something that people didn't really care as much about, but this one was uh, something really worth looking into more. So that was kind of the beginning of Moonlight. So Emma and I started working on it basically uh, part time as we left San Francisco to travel. So I had shut down Staff Joy. Emma had just left Fitbit, and we neither of us had you know the exit where we could travel without income. And so we started freelancing, and that also gave us such a unique insight into what it's like to work remotely for companies, what it's like to do contract work, and also the tooling that developers expect to be really effective. And so that was really the beginning of Moonlight. We were building tools that we wanted for ourselves. And as a developer, I think it's easy to think of everything as looking like a problem that you can solve with code. But we made a really conscious decision to build Moonlight really slowly and we did that by basically iterating without code as much as possible. So we had an end-to-end application really quickly within a couple of days because we made a Squarespace site and we ran the whole business using email and Zapier and Google Sheets and Typeforms. We were able to prototype a whole marketplace without code. And that really helped us understand eventually what needed to be automated.
1: Yeah, I think that's amazing. And we're, we're seeing that theme come up all over the place, these like no code tools or these tools that enable no code application development. Um, Do you mind giving us just like one workflow that you would like an example of something that you were able to build using these tools like Zapier and, and Google Sheets, just to just to provide some sort of insight of like, you know, how much functionality you can actually get out of out of this type of approach?
0: Yeah, I mean, the basic way to think about it is you can use computers to automate tasks. So if you're not at high volume, you can just do them all by hand. So when someone came to post a job on Moonlight, they would use a type form, and then that would basically send an email to me and Emma saying, we have a new job. And then we would send them a Calendly link and say, hey, let's hop on a quick call to figure out the final spec. And then we would look at this whole database of developers that we had in Typeform and search through their biographies for skills that would be a good fit for this job. So if it was a Python job, we would look for the keyword Python. And then we would just select those developers, make a separate Google Sheets that we called the Proposals Google Sheet, and just send that form out to all the developers and say, "Hey, here's the job, here's the details about it. If you want to work on it, then just submit this Google form with a quick blurb about why you're a good fit for the job. And then the companies would get real-time access to that spreadsheet as the applications came in. And then when they selected someone to hire, we would process the payments for them. So every week we well, we would give developers a separate Google Sheet to log their hours. And every Monday we would go through and look at the hours they had logged and issue a new invoice. Uh, we were using uh, paid labs at the time, I think, Now we would probably also consider using Stripe's invoicing feature. And then as soon as the company paid us, that money would come through Stripe. And then we would pay out the developer using payable.com, which kind of handled the 1099 compliance at the time. So that was how we basically did our first $100,000 in gross payments through Moonlight
1: before we had any tooling, really. That's great. I mean, just from that Uh, explanation. You know, you're, you're talking about a payments tool. You're talking about an invoicing application. You're talking about time scheduling. Um, but you're able to one test all of that. And because you guys were doing, you know, your own freelancing, you're kind of eating your own dog food and, and kind of working through these use cases, uh, firsthand. Um, so then once you started this, you know, you had this first hundred thousand in GMV that was processed through the system where did you start as it relates to writing code? Like, how did you prioritize which features you would work on first?
0: Yeah, so it basically was just approaching it from one side of the market and because it's a two sided marketplace and just addressing the most painful things first. So I think we basically started with developer onboarding, like what information do we need to collect about them? And then it, proxying payments through invoices and payable was really hard. So we ended up building an integration with Stripe so that we could pay developers using their Connect marketplace product. That saved us a lot of time to be able to leverage that. And then yeah, Stripe Stripe Connect is great. Yeah, very great. And then we continued building out developers profiles and then worked on the same side for companies, having them onboard, being able to add a payment method And then just the logistics of actively running jobs. So, you know, we had an application, but it was still a type form inside of the application instead of outside of the application to start a new job. And then we slowly just built out the tools for having an active job, issuing weekly invoices, being able to pay an invoice, and then the tooling from that. And it was really just driven by our needs from doing things manually which processes that were manual were breaking and needed to be automated a week. So really it was just do everything manually and that's how we continue to run things today. Just really identifying like what are the biggest pain points for us running the site, for companies hiring and for developers looking for work.
1: Great, yeah, I think that's um, that's a really awesome method. And I think if you look at like Lean Startup and some of these other methodologies, they they kind of speak the, the that same language, You know, build a very lo-fi version of the product Try to start with prototypes uh, before you even write a single line of code. Um, so how long did it take you guys to get that first 100K in, in process services? So that was probably about nine months. So that was more or less our 2017 GMV. Got it. And then can you share a little at all about the scale of the business now at this point? So we are...
0: In kind of a transition point, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we originally were a marketplace where we processed transactions and took a cut. And we've been in the process of switching over to more of a subscription business. So we're kind of in a transition point right now where our net revenue is decreasing as we're building up this book, uh, Recurring Revenue. Um, but I can share that we have over 70 paying customers, over 1,600 active developers, and that. For the last month, we've been growing our subscription revenue at about 28% week over week, which has been really exciting. Got it. And um, who pays the subscription? Like whose? Companies. The companies do. So it's completely free for developers. And the companies who are
1: hiring just pay Moonlight to get access to the product. Got it. So it used to be they would essentially pay you a, uh, a, a percentage of the project um, cost, the price of the project. And now you're shifting that away to... Uh, what why, what's incentivizing the change in the pricing model? Yeah. So a lot of it was just talking to customers and understanding basically that
0: happy customers would still not consider moonlight their first hiring choice partially because of the pricing. So if we're looking at something like Uber, you take a $10 ride and then some cut of that goes to the driver, like $7 or something. And then the rest goes to payment processing and to Uber. And so Moonlight originally made money by, make, by adding that markup, where payments would have to go through Moonlight. And enforcing that was hard because developers had to log their hours in Moonlight, companies had to pay through Moonlight. And we also enforced a flat fee if you hired someone outside of Moonlight. So if you worked with them as a contractor and converted to full time, clearly they wouldn't be submitting timesheets as a contractor anymore. And so we charged a flat rate fee for that hire and just managing that was really hard. And in particular, we had customers who had one or two developers that they were working with through Moonlight and they were really happy about it, but they still would say to us on calls that before they would post a new job on Moonlight, they would check their personal networks because they knew that each additional hire and each additional hour logged costs them extra through Moonlight. And so we had a customer basically propose to us, hey, what if I pay you a subscription for the year and just work with people full time instead of doing this 15% fee? And we were kind of surprised by that at first. And we thought about it. We realized that one of the problems as a marketplace is just how many points there are for falloff. And in particular, if you're looking at something like Uber, their drivers are doing a lot of rides every day. And so the value from Uber, a lot of it just comes from how many times you're switching to a new customer. And so if you have high frequency and low dollar value, it makes a lot of sense to do a marketplace model. But what we were learning was that in order to make a marketplace model work with lower frequency and a much higher cost, we would need to... To either stop the two sides of the market from talking to each other, or we would need to figure out a new way to make money. And that's where we started to switch over to a subscription. And that's been really great for us because now Moonlight is more of a product than a marketplace. And it really helps us focus in on kind of our funnel to converting someone to being a paying customer. Because in the old way with a marketplace, we would have to have somebody post a job, then get developers to apply. And then have the company talk to the developers and pick someone to talk to and then interview them and then make a decision to hire and then have them do paperwork and then actually get them access to the systems and then have that person actually start doing work, then log their hours, then issue an invoice and then pay the invoice. And then all the way at the end there of that long process, Moonlight Moonlight made money. And as we were trying to optimize that funnel, we realized that it was just so long and included so many steps that it was a really difficult problem for us to fix But now as a product, what's really cool is we can just focus on delivering value more as a sourcing product at the top of the funnel with customers. And then we aren't necessarily making that contingency revenue if they choose to hire any particular person or
1: to continue working with them on Moonlight. Yeah, I think pricing is people oversimplify pricing as they think about how to price their products. I think we talked about that a little bit. What exercises did you go through to figure out what Price point was right as you switched this pricing model? Was it just getting feedback from customers or what, what kind of drove um, you know what drove that decision? So a lot of the inspiration
0: came from the book High Growth Handbook by Elad Gill. And his first chapter or two is basically all about experiment with pricing. Experiment with pricing. Like no matter what, experiment with pricing. And I really took that to heart and said, like, we started this business with no code and the idea of a 15% flat rate fee. Like, what if we tried messing around with that? What would happen? And we built a whole system to let us experiment with the hourly rates and the percentage we took so that developers still set their hourly rate and got paid 100% of that. So if a developer said my hourly rate is $100 per hour, they would still make $100 per hour, no matter how we messed around with the markup but we would experiment with the markup for companies we tried, you know, 10%, 5%, 30%, 35%. And we started to realize that companies were extremely price sensitive on that hourly rate, and that developers and companies were talking directly to each other and that developers felt like it was unfair if we were adding in a really large percentage on the hourly rate. And so that was a really key learning for us that with a marketplace pricing model, And just with the nature of the work that Moonlight was doing, just that low frequency, like higher cost work that we couldn't experiment with pricing. And that's kind of where we took a step back. And I think we were having a lot of questions of like, how are we going to handle this with Moonlight? Like, how are we going to figure out our pricing? And so we kind of took a break and went on kind of a last minute trip. And on that trip, we're just not working. We ended up having like a long discussion at dinner one night. And we kind of said, like, we're both product people. Like, This is a really difficult marketplace to run and to optimize from end to end. But what if we, instead of making Moonlight this marketplace, kind of just made it a product? Then we could sell it to people as more of a subscription, and it would solve a lot of our problems. We would be able to experiment with pricing without having to affect the relationship between companies and developers. And we would be able to experiment with different tools that we would be providing it would let us move further up the value chain to not necessarily have to follow the customer journey all the way through to a higher. It just seemed like it was much more of a fit for the skills Emma and I had and just the openness that we wanted to create on Moonlight.
1: How does it feel so far now that you guys have started this transition? Is, are you, does this feel like this was the right decision? Yeah. So we have been focusing
0: on a lot of different projects that may not have created value in a marketplace. And... Along with that, we had a key learning that companies were using Moonlight's contractor marketplace as a contract-to-hire kind of setup. So they would come to Moonlight and hire a developer for some part-time contract work. But what we didn't consider at the outset was that companies would use something like this to engage with developers in kind of a trial. And if things went well, then consider working with them full-time. And it's turned out that we've been having a lot of companies who have been really successful at evaluating developers and building rapport with them through short-term contract work. And so they've been using Moonlight now to build a full-time hiring pipeline. And this subscription-based product is a lot better of a fit for something like that because the developers and the companies are able to work together at their own pace. We don't have to pressure them to do anything specific with like hourly rates, or contract term, and there's no contingency fees if they're switching from contract to full time. And so we realized that along with the pricing switch, we kind of stumbled onto the opportunity to be more of a sourcing platform for companies. And that's been resonating really well with managers. And so we continued to experiment with pricing after we switched to a subscription product. And we continue to experiment with that today, but we basically realized that if we price Moonlight correctly, we can sell directly to hiring managers and help those hiring managers engage directly with developers. And we can do that without needing to go through a procurement process or hiring process. And it turns out to be a really quick and effective way to get developers to be working together with companies and to figure out whether there's a mutual fit to continue work together.
1: Great. I want to wrap this up shortly because I'm trying to keep these under 30 minutes. However, I have two topics I want to touch on briefly, and they're kind of intertwined. Um, So one is you guys are currently bootstrapped at the at the moment. Um, And I know you, you know, you're not sure if you'll take funding in the future. But can you speak a little bit, bit about how you went out and got your first paying customers with a very little marketing budget and and there wasn't a lot, you didn't have a sales team. What was that like? And how did you develop those first customer relationships? My general advice is that as a company,
0: it's really important for you to figure out not just your product, but also how you're going to distribute your product. And there needs to be some kind of key insights also in terms of getting users on the site that you can use to help scale. Because buying ads is never a good option for anybody. And when you raise funding, it's not going to be effective use of your capital to just pour money into ads. So for us to get our very first users, we went through our network, I think being open about what we were working on and sharing it on Facebook and things like that was really helpful. And we got some really great early customers because of that. In addition, just looking out for people who have a need for your product and reaching out to them is a really great way. We have a couple of customers that are, you know, unicorn multi-billion dollar companies that we closed just because I saw a product manager tweet that they needed a contractor and I DM'd them and they ended up hiring somebody through Moonlight. In terms of other ways, I think launching early is an extremely great option. You don't need to have a finished application to do a launch, but if you're able to go on product hunt, go do a show HN, get into some of the different product launch newsletters, that's a great way to get in front of early adopters. And I think that's a really important part about those launches is that you really need to be focusing on early adopters and those people who want to try a broken product so that you can get some really great early feedback. And in terms of other options for growing, I think just try to leverage your community once you start to have people using your site. Uh, Asking people for referrals, asking happy customers if they know anyone else who would be a good fit for Moonlight or your company is another great way to go, but in general, just Put it out there and help people discover you. Don't be afraid to Twitter DM or Facebook
1: message people and ask them to try out your product. Yeah, that's that's perfect. That's great advice. Um, and then, as it relates to bootstrapping, I mean, is the plan to to buckle down, or do you are you rethinking? Um, you know, is there venture funding? in your future or, or how are you, how are you walking that line? I know a lot of independent makers will put something out there, get some early traction and think they have to go raise venture capital as a next step, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the answer. How are, how are you thinking about this? I think what Indy VC talks about with permissionless entrepreneurship is
0: a very important part here, which is if you can focus on getting revenue from your business earlier, then you don't need anyone's permission in order to build a business And I've talked with a lot of entrepreneurs who put together a business plan, go out, pitch investors, don't get any interest, and then shut down the business because they couldn't get any funding. And the more you can put yourself in a position where you can iterate and learn really quickly and not need anyone's permission to keep working on it, then the more value you can create.
1: Great. Well, uh, there you have it. I think that's a great place for us to wrap this up. Philip, I really appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, And congrats on all the success so far with Moonlight. And we really look forward to tracking your progress here over the next um, couple months. Awesome. Thanks, Dan.